Welcome to the second episode of Mining Diamonds Along the Border, How Tuberculosis Saved a Baseball League. I'm Van Tate, sports director for KRQE News 13 in Fox, New Mexico, here with baseball historian Lynn Bevel and Mary Darling, who has created a narrative version of the history for television called Borderball. Once again, this program is brought to you by the Historical Society of New Mexico, Jane C. Sanchez Grant. Now, we left off the last episode promising to get into the heart of Lynn's research about banned players. I guess some of those outlaw players didn't even get to the uh, area until, what, like 1925 or something like that? That's Yeah, that's when Chase, uh, Chase arrived and then shortly thereafter started bringing in other players, yes. So when I got a hold of Lynn's research, he mentioned something that happened in 1924, the year before, and that was a player by the name of Red Oldham uh-huh. got caught playing on the Santa Rita team under an assumed name of Miller. And he was uh, found out and kicked off the team. Already, Landis had a huge reach, and the area, the border area was trying to establish one team or one league with Class D status, which had to be approved by Landis. So they didn't want to take any risks. So if there was a player that was out of sorts with Landis, they didn't want him playing. So that led me on a search, well, who is this Red Oldham? And he was really exciting because the first thing that came up, here he was banned, right, in 1924, In the ninth inning of the seventh game of the 1925 World Series, he came out of the bullpen and shut down three batters in a row who are now in the Hall of Fame. And I said, that is going to be in my story. (laughs) (laughs) And, And I did a little more research on him, and I did find out that in 1922, he was a backup pitcher, left-handed pitcher for the Detroit Tigers, and um, Ty Cobb was his manager. And he was playing in the California Winter League, which was a league of a few white teams that would play against Negro League All-Stars. And this had been going on since the beginning of the 20th century. It was very popular. A lot of players played in it. But Landis was working at extinguishing that. Mm -hmm. And so he put Oldham under investigation in November of 1922 for playing in that league. Landis was very good at... I I don't know how to explain it, maybe killing two birds with one stone. So he had another reason besides that, that he was putting him under under investigation. But at that time, if you were put under investigation by Landis, your career was over. And Oldham said, hey, I'm quitting baseball. I'm not putting up with this. So he quit baseball, and the next time he showed up was 1924 in Santa Rita, New Mexico. So that was just too charming. So I just want to say that happened for 1925. And it's in my story. I'm sure Landis, you know, that, which which uh, makes sense as far as Landis trying to uh, stop everything mm-hmm. outside of his league. He's, he just seems, you know, the way he comes across in all of this, he just seems like one of those, like almost like a villain. He is so easy to not like. Yeah. <laughs> that, that makes it easy for me. So I love him for that. I'm sure they popped the corks from the <laughs> champagne at, at his demise. <laughs> so... <laughs> Well, how, how was, you know, we're talking about this league. How was it formed and organized, Lynn? You know, when... Uh... Yeah. Well, uh, leagues were 
kind of a fact from time to time in the Southwest. I mean, you have this large number of teams, and often they just simply played against each other, like the Douglas going to Nogales, Cananea, Mexico, even the White Mountains with the Fort Apache Reservation, uh, Globe, Miami, El Paso, Tucson, they, they played against each other. But over time, it became a little more formalized as these mines particularly began to have players who, yes, they had a job, but they also played baseball. And so these teams got better, and the desire for competition uh, was heightened. And a couple of times, leagues would form, they'd kind of play, then it might the following year dissolve. And in 1925, El Paso and Juarez, having both having teams, were kind of interested in forming what they that year called the Frontier League. Uh, they contacted Fort Bayard, who was very interested, and Douglas was interested. Several other places showed interest but didn't develop, but those four teams did. So they got together talking, and the Douglas team announced that they planned to hire Hal Chase as their manager player. And the league kind of balked. Here was a guy who they thought had been banned from baseball. Now, going back through the record, we know that he was never actually banned from Major League Baseball. He was banned from the Pacific Coast League Parks, but Landis never placed him on an ineligible list, but everyone thought he was. So he was blacklisted for sure. Well, there were only four teams. Douglas said, if we don't have Chase, we're not going to join the league. So the league decided, well, I guess we'll accept it. So they announced they would accept Chase as their manager player, but only him. Now, there was another player who was perceived as being uh, band, but was not, who was already in the area, named Tom Seaton. Uh, Tom was a, a player who was a very good pitcher who jumped to the Federal League, and after he came back from the Federal League, never reached his old potential, ended up uh, playing in various places, and eventually was part of the scandal that when Chase was banned from the PCL, he was one of the pitchers, along with Casey Smith, who were released uh, without actually ever saying what they had done, but with the quotes, they were released for the good of baseball. Seton was scheduled to pitch for Juarez, and the league actually wrote a letter to the San Francisco Seals to ensure that he was not a banned player. And they dutifully sent a letter back, and so Seton was allowed to join them. I want to say something about Seton, Lynn. Um, sure. So in his in his heyday playing, his wife was pregnant and expecting a baby, and he was on the road, and his manager got word that she was in labor, and it was tricky. 
And nobody on the team told him until after he pitched the game and won it. And he went back and the baby had died in childbirth. And he and his wife never forgave the league for that. So mm -hmm. he had some emotional buy-in past the meal, so to speak. Yes. Yeah, yes. that's that's a that's a really tough deal. I mean, that, I, I, I'm sure he thought that that was underhanded. Yeah. You know, just, well, it was. And that's how I handle mm -hmm. his character. In, yeah. in, he's he's pretty minor in my story, but that's what he brings to the brings to the table, Van. <laughs> brings to the table. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, and. And even though he's minor in her play, he was pretty big in the league. Mm -hmm. He pitched for three years on three different teams and was a central fact and uh, powerhouse, one of the top pitchers. How tough of a deal was it to bring in those first two Black Sox players? Well, uh, no. Not, I, I didn't really find anything. What, okay. But Chase's what team was losing. Chase's team was losing. And then in early, they, they, they played a split season. They, at, the, at the midpoint of the season, they declared a first half champion. And then they started over for the second half. Oh, okay. And Douglas was really doing poorly. And then... He got word that his mother was very ill, and he left and went back to uh, San Jose, and by the time he got there, she, she had died. And so he missed the last part of the first half. Um, before the second half started, he returned, and with him were Chick Gandel, who was living in Oakland, and Buck Weaver from Chicago. They joined the team. I could find nothing being said one way or the other. Uh, I think I say something to the effect that obviously the policy had changed, but no one had bothered to announce it. It was clear those guys were going to play, and they did. And Mary, how, how, do you, how do you get the audience to this point in the story? So I have a few other characters to talk about. Christy Matheson is one. When I started really getting into the research, I went to Zimmerman Library, University of New Mexico's library, and started reading old articles. I was also reading a biography of Hal Chase at the time. And I remember reading these articles and all about Hal Chase, you know, and the, and the games. And I was walking home and I said, I have, to, I have to find out about Christy Matheson. I have to find out about this man. And here's where it's vague. I honestly don't think I'd read any chapters about Hal and Christy Matheson because they had a friendship. And anytime you read anything in depth about Hal Chase or anything in depth about Christy Matheson, you're going to read that they knew each other. At the same time, when I was reading the articles, I was reading about the area I was reading a lot about Fort Baird and its tuberculosis hospital. In 1922, it opened the largest, most state-of-the-art tuberculosis hospital in the world. At the time, Fort Baird was a self-contained community. Its motto was patients comfort first. It had its own dairy, produce, and agriculture with a post office, golf course, library, amusement hall, telegraph office, barbershop, theater, baseball field, of course, and a lodge for visiting families all on the grounds. And that's the world of my story. Just 
outside of the federal property lines of Fort Baird was a creek and it was called the Orchard. And it was a wonderful part of my story because the players from both teams would gather there after the games and there was beer and gunny sacks that was in the creek kept cold and they would spend time talking about the game and doing man gossip. And it was a perfect place for me to do a lot of exposition in a fun sort of way. It really is instrumental in us becoming a state. Um, Nancy Oliver Lewis wrote a whole book, and it's a great book called Chasing the Cure in New Mexico. And it talks about the tuberculosis era. And Fort Barrett has been transformed whenever necessary. So in 1866 to 1899, it was protecting colonization. And 1899, they needed to start doing something else. And it was one of two dilapidated forts that became the first military institutions for the treatment of lung disease and tuberculosis, and mostly it was uh, soldiers from the Philippines. All this was coming, and I was seeing, wow, Fort Barrett is very, very interesting. And the more I read about Christy Matheson, he ended up coming back from World War I with tuberculosis, and he suffered his first bout in 1921, and then 22 looked pretty good, but he had a second bout beginning in 1925. At that time, this military hospital was renowned, Everything I've read has him going back to Saranac Lake for treatment. But what I believe is that no matter what, he was at least touted to come to Fort Baird and likely would have. Would he stay for the whole summer? I don't know. But he and Hal Chase had a great friendship, and then it completely fell apart. And it's really probably one of the big reasons Christy Matheson even signed up to, to serve in World War I, to get away from the League. Um, and so I felt like, wow wow, I could bring them back together. That would be interesting. So in, in screenwriting, you have to have like a log line for the whole series, which yeah. is, to me, it's eight men out, some found in the bush, even though it would be a patch of cactus. But um, then, <laughs> but not everybody knows. <laughs> so, but for... Season one, it's after World War I, baseball's biggest hero and wow. baseball's biggest scoundrel find themselves alone in the desert, one at the end of his career, the other at the end of his life. Together, they use baseball to heal the wounds of their own war. So I have Christy Matheson coming out, oh, okay. and he ends up like seeing the one person he wouldn't want to see, Hal Chase, who is still playing baseball. And baseball was a big um, draw for Fort Baird patients. It was their entertainment. Yeah, I mean, it's, this is it's very interesting how people still don't even realize it's a state to this day. You know, no. you tell you tell somebody you're from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and they say, "Oh, how you like Mexico?" It's like, no, New Mexico. <laughs> so, well, Nancy Oliver Lewis, when she did her her research for Chasing the Cure, in the book I read twice, we were trying to at- obtain statehood, and what what she brings to light is. The powers that be said, you don't have enough Anglo people there. you got to get more white people there. And bringing white people here for the cure was a way to increase the population. Isn't that wild? Wow. That is wild. I'm not surprised by it. Um, And twice people from the larger government that were coming here and trying to assess the situation, I read in her book twice, they said, well, could you change the name of the state to, to Lincoln? You might have a chance. Oh, wow. Thank God they didn't. Because it's it's unique. New Mexico sounds good. Well, it's our culture, too, right? I mean, okay, we'll give you a county. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. we, we have a county named Lincoln yeah. for people aren't from New Mexico. Uh, Billy the Kid. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So. So, but but it was the hospital was lively. It was, uh, um, and if there's a way I I treat season one, it's like there's so much life at the end, at, at the end of a game, at the end of a season, at the end of life. Lynn, I think you should talk about some of the charm that was inside of Fort Baird at the time, if you don't yeah, mind. Yeah, it was, it was, you know, as you've said, a tuberculous hospital uh, for veterans, those that have been gassed during the First World War. And almost immediately, the, the superintendent saw baseball as something that would draw everyone together. Now, we're, we're talking, you know, several hundred veterans in a hospital with the staff, but they managed to put together a system. Um, and there's a delightful article that I found, an unpublished paper that had been written of a woman who interviewed essentially the guy who was the quartermaster for the uh, fort. And when the teams were playing, he had put together a tax on everything that people would buy in the post that would go towards supporting the baseball. Now, this didn't, you know, the, the post hired the players and they worked, most of them worked, I think, in the motor pool uh, and then played ball also. So they, they were provided housing, they were provided a job and a salary and there was a quartermaster place there to, to get some supplies. So it was a good life. But in addition, they wanted the game to be available to everyone. Many of these guys couldn't get out of the bed. And so they actually piped a sound system into the wards so that someone would call the game and it would be broadcast to all of the patients. And they also used this to follow like the World Series. It was it was quite a system and very, very supportive and caring of those patients. It it must have been just a fascinating place to have been at that time. There's another player we need to talk about, Joe Rogan, Bullet Joe Rogan, which is one of the first uh, Negro League players that is in the Baseball Hall of Fame. He came out to play for the Fort Baird team all three of those seasons that Lynn writes about. He's known as like starting his baseball career late. And I thought, well, why would he come to Fort Baird? I mean, Hal Chase had played in the Winter Leagues against teams with Joe Rogan on him. Why wouldn't he play for Hal Chase's team? Why did he play for Fort Baird? So I did as much research as I could, which isn't as much as a lot of people, but I did find out that Joe Rogan served in the Philippines and got a medical discharge in 1914, which is when Fort Baird was treating soldiers from the Philippines with lung disease. Fort Baird was playing baseball at that time, 1915. Joe Rogan was re-enlisted and played in Hawaii, and I'll throw it to Lynn in just a minute to say where he was discovered. If he came back to Fort Baird, and he was released for medical purposes, and then he went right back into the service and started playing baseball for the first time ever. He didn't play baseball before that. And they were playing baseball at Fort Baird, and they were treating tuberculosis at Fort Baird. 
I, I just feel like he was a patient there and started playing baseball. And I, I can stand by that. I'll stand. I don't know it, but I'll stand by it. Um, but Lynn can talk about where Joe Rogan was actually discovered. Sure. Uh, this is another one of those stories, you know, stranger than fiction. 1919, Casey Stengel got traded and to Pittsburgh, and he refused to report. Well, he had no other option. He couldn't play for another team, so he went back to Kansas City, and he put together a barnstorming team and took off traveling across the Southwest toward California. On that stop, he came to Fort Huachuca. Now, there's some confusion because Stengel misses his geography a little bit, but he talks about Fort Huachuca and Nogales. But the obvious point we found from other sources is troops from Fort Huachuca were at Camp Stephen D. Little in Nogales, and they had a baseball team, and it was a pretty good team. And Stengel's team came in, played a couple of games against them, and the Stephen D. Little team beat them up pretty bad. Well, Stengel went ahead, finished his trip, ended up in California, and then came back to Kansas City. Now, right about this time, uh, they were forming what was come to be called the Negro National League. And they were interested in a team in Kansas City. A man by the name of Wilkinson was going to form the team. Uh, Stengel got together with him and said, if you're looking for players, you do. And this is where he got his geography confused. He said, you do well to go out to Fort Huachuca in Nogales. Well, Wilkinson did, and he ended up signing five players uh, off of that team who got their discharge and went to Kansas City and played for the Monarchs. Um, they were such an influence, having five players, that for a time they were known as the veterans rather than the Monarchs. Bullet Rogan is the most notable. As I mentioned, I think he's in the Hall of Fame. And he pitched, coached, or umpired every year of the 33 years the Negro National League existed. Uh, he is an incredible person. Uh, and as Mary mentioned, a strong pitcher who came late, pitched a long time, was effective both as a pitcher and a hitter, and uh, a great player. Well, his, his de nickname definitely tells you yeah. about his talent. It bullet. does. Bullet, it's hard to hit a bullet. <laughs> <laughs> so in 1922, Joe Rogan was playing for the California Winter League. Mm -hmm. So was Red Oldham. Um. So, yes. So they, the, and Red Oldham beat him. And Joe Rogan beat him. I mean, so we went back and forth. Yes, right. So that gives you an idea of their talent. So when I was figuring out how to put my story together, um, one thing that kept coming to me is in this, what you want to do with an anti-hero is show some positive aspect. Uh -huh. um, and as good as they get with Jack Nicholson, they have a dog 
like him, right? Yeah. So <laughs> what I really kept coming back to was Hal Chase had it written in his contract that every winter he could go play in the Winter League. And he did, always. And mm. this wasn't uncommon. Babe Ruth did. Bill McKechnie. A lot of players did. So Christy Matheson, however, other than playing in Cuba with the New York Giants sometimes, never once played with African-Americans on United States of America soil. Not once. Wow. So here, Christy Matheson is called the Christian player. And Hal Chase was the problem child. So let's talk about 2020 or 2021. Now let's evaluate those two facts. Very, very good. Uh, Juxtaposition, right? Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, it's... it's. Yeah. So one player I went looking for, like a lot of this just fell in my lap. Okay, I, I worked. Like I went uh, to libraries and read, but you know, they... Yeah, like, but you, you ended up finding more yes. nuggets than you anticipated right. that you would find. Right, Um, But I really thought, you know... I wonder if there is an African-American baseball player who suffered from tuberculosis and was in World War I. There he is. There he is, Tom Johnson, Lieutenant Thomas Jefferson Johnson. So I put him at Fort Baird. Uh So here are these two men, both professional baseball players, both college educated, both served as officers in World War I, both second bout of tuberculosis, and I put him at Fort Baird. Um, because that's a way to look at this juxtaposition. Yeah, He's really difficult to find information about. Uh, he was born in Bryan, Texas, and then he went to college uh, scholarship at William Morris. But there is a man who recently recovered something I feel very interesting. It's on agate type. There was a letter sent from Wilbur, who is Tom Johnson's brother, to an African-American newspaper in Chicago, says, hello, Defender, just a few lines to let you hear from all the boys. We are all well, and we hope through you our many friends will know we are still alive. I just received a long letter from Rube Foster, my brother Tom Johnson's manager. He tells me the draft had caught a lot of the boys. Well, they are good ball players. We can use them very well as grenade throwers. What I, <laughs> what I want to say about that is Christy Matheson uh-huh. was a captain, as well as Ty Cobb, and Brad Ricky was their major, and they trained soldiers about how to put on their masks. They were in very protected service. Oh, wow. And African-American professional baseball players were throwing grenades. Another injustice. Yes, we haven't talked about Tommy Foy yet, though. Yeah, Tommy Foy. T- tell us, uh, tell us how, why you why you felt like you wanted to, to have him in your story. Well, he is both Lynn and mine's primary source. Well, he was the assistant Bat Boy in 1925. Right. You know, he didn't make the Bat Boy till 1926. I grew up with ba- Tommy Foy at every single family event, every wedding, every every single thing. He and his family were there. That's how close our families were. He ended up serving in the New Mexico State Legislature for 38 years. Um, he was the district attorney in um, Grant County. I never knew this about him, but as as a 12-year-old, he was the bat boy to these very famous baseball players. So he, of course, is in my script, too. You'll hear a little bit in the clip about how he rode his bicycle on uh-huh. and off the hospital grounds to deliver the information to the broadcaster. <laughs> yeah, that's, 
I, I, now that you say that, I remember reading about that when reading some of your your research as, as far as Tommy Foy is concerned. And, and uh, I'm sure some of those, uh, just knowing that family, some of the conversations have been pretty interesting. Well, let's play a clip that features Tommy Foy. So in this clip, it's happening before a game starts. So the stands are slowly filling up and you'll hear some of that going on and players are greeting each other. And it starts with Hal Chase and Red Oldham greeting each other. And I want to say that Red Oldham plays under the assumed name Jackson because there was a pitcher called Lefty Jackson for the first part of the that season playing at Fort Baird. And soon after, Tommy Foy comes up and begins to question Oldham about Chase. Looking mighty for an old man. Prime, tender, and juicy. (laughs) You know him? Of course I know him. Is it true what they say about him? Depends. What do they say? That he went crooked. Does he look crooked to you? When he played in the bigs. Do you like being a bat boy? Assistant bat boy. (laughs) Okay. Do you like being the assistant bat boy? Of course I do. Why do you think that is? Because baseball's the greatest game ever. I agree. You have to ride your bicycle here to do your job, don't you? Yes. And part of your job is to ride it onto hospital grounds during games, isn't it? Yes, sir. Does your mother know about that part of your job? No, sir. I didn't think so. Why doesn't she? I promised her I wouldn't ever go into the hospital, but it's part of my job. You promised your mother you wouldn't go into the hospital, and you do it anyways? Does that make you crooked? I suppose it does. What would happen if your mother found out? I'd have to quit my job. Would that make you any less crooked? I guess not. Why are you asking me these questions? I just want to make sure you can think like a ball player. Everyone knows it's the greatest game ever. Ball players know that they would do almost anything to be a part of it. Was he as good as they say he was? Better, but he's plenty good now. Folks say his team stinks because no one will play with him. Folks sure say a lot, don't they? Can I ask you a question? I believe you have been. Is your last name really Jackson? What's your name, kid? Tommy. Tommy Foy. Some people say you got kicked off a team for not using your real name. They say you used a different name because you got kicked out of the bigs, and anyone who gets caught playing with you will get kicked out too. Well, Tommy Foy. I get a paycheck every week. My name's on it, and 
the bank cashes it. Now, give me some luck. One of the ways that information was circulated within the hospital was this section that came out every Friday in the newspaper, the Fort Baird News. Uh And each ward would have somebody in charge, and they would collect the news of the ward and send it out in the newspaper. One thing I kept coming up with was, hmm, it sounds like this is how they figured out how the betting was run, you know. Right. So we're going to play a little clip that features the Fort Baird News. And I want to explain a little bit about what's going on in this clip. Chase has spotted Maddie in the stands, and there's no way he's going to lose with Maddie watching him. That's not going to happen. In the stands for the community, he sees a pitcher that we've all seen in the 1921 game sitting there waiting for the game to start. In the Red Cross stands, that's where the patients sit. College and Maddie are sitting close enough to each other to visit, but they're still each with their own cultural group, meaning Tom Johnson is on the edge of the African-American section and Maddie is on the edge of the white section. And Tom Johnson sees what Chase is about to do. Indio, mi amigo. I know help you. Get hombre, pero we get orders. Play only for company. Great, because today I'm company. <laughs> no one's <laughs> your company. What he's doing over there now, that's going to mess up the spread. What's the spread? Ten. Ten? I believe so, but let me look again. I'll pay you two weeks' wages. The boss will dock you a week. You'll still be up by a week. What do you say? You can't turn me down now. Got church shoes. Well, I'll find you a pair of shoes. It's 10, all right. The paper reports the spread? Sort of, if you know how to read it. Always got to be looking for notices regarding the motor pool because that's where the players work. See here, it says, boys in the motor pool, could you tell Buck? So now we're talking about money. To all those wheels up so it doesn't squeak so loud past 10 p.m. The Prince's team's been doing so poorly, the thinking is we'll get 10 runs on them. Gambling ruined the sport. Around here, gambling is sport. One most of us can still play. some shoes. If we win, I'll bump it to three weeks' wages. Come on! It'll be fun! Jingao! <laughs> <laughs> I do eat. This is the last clip people are going to hear from me today. The clip is, so the game is going on and uh-huh. um, Chase has been up to bat and he, he hits a home run. You know he's a hero around here. Heroes must be in short supply. Getting shorter all the time. If he's such a hero, why hasn't he put together a winning team? White players that are good enough to play with him are afraid to. Don't want to ruin their future chances. Juarez gets first crack at all the Mexican players. 
It's good that Red knows better than to play with Chase. Red plays for us because the Chief insisted on it. Thinks having a veteran on the team lifts our spirits. Guess I agree. I guess that it lets us know that uh, by this time, Chase is uh, damaged goods. Yep, and Oldham is a veteran. Yeah, because, well, Chase's reputation, it's almost like he bet on himself as far as being able to pull off all this gambling and, and play and not have it uh, affect his career, and he lost. Because, I mean, it, it made it very clear that some of the players didn't even want to play with them. Right. Well, well Lynn, can you talk about the uh, rest of the season in the Copper League? Well, when uh, Chase returned for the second half, of course, he brought Chick Gandal and Buck Weaver. Uh, this obviously promoted a, a lot of excitement, both in Douglas and around the league. Uh, both these guys were really well known, both because they were very good and, be of course, because of the Black Sox. Uh, Douglas's fortunes began to turn fairly quickly. They still did not have pitching, as Mary was alluding to, but with such a powerful threesome, and then when the Nogales team collapsed, a young shortstop named Cowboy Ruiz came to play, and Chase used to joke about his million-dollar infield. Um, the league began to spread out, both Douglas and Juarez were doing very well, playing good seasons. Fort Bayard was doing well, but not great, and El Paso was the punching bag of the league. As the came down to the final weekend, a pretty big controversy occurred. Douglas was ahead by two games, and they were set to play a two-game series against Juarez. All they had to do was win either one of those games, and they would be the champion. There was a third game that could be played because there had been a rainout earlier in the season. Well, as so often happens, Douglas lost first the one game, then the second game. According to the schedule, that was the last day of the season. But that meant they ended in a tie. And so the league had stated that they should play this makeup game that would break the tie. Douglas, for whatever reason, decided that the season had ended, they were the winners, and they were going to go home. The league waited. Juarez showed up for the game. Douglas did not. The league declared Juarez the winner and the second half championship. This did not, needless to say, set well with the Douglas people and was to have an impact on Chase's position with the team. Once again, and I think this is an interesting thing to speculate about the players. I think there was a negative halo around Chase and the players. And if something bad happened, well, 
there's Chase, there's Gandalf. They must some way be involved. So when somehow Douglas lost this game, somehow it seemed it must be Chase's fault, even though everything that was reported was that this was a decision made by the, by the team. Juarez uh, then followed that up by playing the first half champions, Fort Bayard, and beating them in that series in three straight games. And so the season ended with Juarez looking pretty good, El Paso looking dismal, Fort Bayard probably the only team looking well, and Douglas in somewhat disarray. The 1926 season didn't look particularly promising as the season ended. Well, as far as uh, the postseason goes for uh, uh, 1925, Mary, you, you, could you talk about that, the, the postseason in the World Series in 1925? So one thing I want to say, even though Red Oldham saved the series, so the Pittsburgh Pirates won the series, in my story, it really is Chase's moment because Chase was a man, he was a fixer. Basically, right. that's what he was. Good, bad, or indifferent, he was a man that could make other men do things. And yeah. he was responsible for that moment. You know, I, I can't resist. You said he was a fixer. <laughs> he, he was, because yeah. he fixed games, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's how I usually describe him. He was a fixer, you know? Yeah, yeah. Fixed, lot, fixed uh, people and fixed games. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just didn't fix himself. So what we know is that the Sojourners Club, which is a, was an outshoot of the Masons, uh -huh. presented Fort Baird with a stadium-sized electric scoreboard so that the World Series could be watched by the players and patients. And Tommy Foy revealed that it had to be put up in the theater because it was too big for the amusement hall. Right. And it's a beautiful way to sort of end the series, um, end the season. I mean, yeah, season one. Can you imagine that? Or we got to talk a little bit more about this. In 1925, out in the middle of the desert, tuberculosis patients getting to watch the World Series alongside of players that actually played in a World Series. Incredible. Well, and I think before we go any further, I want to mention something just to, on Tommy Foy. Uh, personally, this was a man who, uh, after being a uh, bat boy for the team, went on, uh, graduated from Notre Dame, came back to New Mexico, joined the National Guard right before the beginning of World War II. Soon as the war started, he was, his unit was activated. They were sent to the Philippines in Corregidor, where he was there for the siege. When they surrendered, he participated in the infamous Bataan Death March and spent the entire war locked up in a Japanese prison of war camp. An incredible man, and that puts us back to what was going on in the wards of Fort Bayard. Mary, uh, I think you have a pretty good perspective on what was happening there. Well, I'm so glad you brought Tommy Foy up again, because whenever I think of how I portray 
the time that the baseball players and patients were watching the World Series together, I think of Tommy Foy because it's my primary source. He was so joyous speaking about it. He called it the picture show, that he get, got to watch it in the picture show. And I also want to tell people a little story that I think is charming. He was 12 years old and he had ridden his bike to and from the field for his job. His uncle thought that was just too much for him and he gave him an old truck. So I have him driving up to the World Series, getting out of his truck, just like he's anybody else. You know, he's a team member. But it was really the highlight of that time period for him. Um, so I, I, I'm glad you brought him up again. I do want to say that while the players are watching on the picture show, as Tommy Foy called it, the World Series happening in Pittsburgh or Washington, I'm also portraying it so the audience sees it in both places. And I was fortunate enough to meet a gentleman by the name of Ronald T. Waldo, who is a Pittsburgh baseball historian. And during the course of my studies, he wrote a whole book called The Battling Bucks of 1925, How the Pittsburgh Pirates Pulled Off the Greatest Comeback in World Series History. It's a marvelous read. And because my husband is from Pittsburgh, we travel there now and again. And on one of those journeys, I got to meet Ronald and talk to him about how I was doing things and his his work. And I've developed a wonderful friendship with him, and he's been a great addition to my being able to portray that part of the story, the part that was happening at the series at the time. Lynn, could you talk about how important baseball was to the community? Because it wasn't just for the players and patients. What Fort Bayard did for every community when it joined the league was provide a lot of entertainment, a strong sense of collective pride for each community. So can can you get us up to speed on that? Sure. Uh, this, uh, you know, a lot of people think, well, it's a, you know, it's a baseball game, but we're talking about these isolated communities, uh, people working long hours, hard days, uh, hard scrabble living, and this provided not just entertainment, but a high quality of entertainment, and it also helped. I think, and you know, I don't think this can be overemphasized a strong sense of identity to the town, to the team, uh, and, you know, this sense of this is who we are. And that was very important. And I, we certainly can't downplay the fact that this wasn't just entertainment. This was pretty high-quality entertainment. We're talking about some pretty good ball players several of whom were still in their prime and would have been in the major leagues had they not been banned. Well, we're talking about great ball playing and the community enjoying all the effort there. Only thing missing is a table spread with food, right? (laughs) (laughs) And that's a good place to leave off. Join us next time for the final episode of Mining Diamonds Along the Border, How Tuberculosis Saved a Baseball League, You can visit miningdiamondsalongtheborder.com for added details about the league, as well as the Historical Society of New Mexico website, hsnm.org. Once again, we'll leave you by playing out with Yavame Al Partido, original English lyrics, Ira Newborn, Jack Norworth, Albert Von Tisler, Spanish translation, Lara Manzanares, and Juan Carlos Sabaranas. Performed by Lara Manzanares, 
Tanya Nunez, and Jordan Wax, and recorded at the Kitchen Sink Studios. Sound engineer, John O'Manson. Sosa se volvió loca por ir al juego de pelota apoyando al equipo del pueblo se acabó su dinero el amor de Rosa le llamó hoy es sábado vamos a ver un show pero la Rosita le respondió no mejor me haces el favor de Llevarme al partido, llévame al jonrón, cómprame palomitas y cacahuates, que me importa si nunca regrese y vamos nuestros muchachos, ganar es lo que les pido y con un, dos, tres estás partido falló por primer nombre a todos conoció le gritó al amparas marcado mal reclamó hasta el final en el empate de dos a dos Rosita levantó la voz para animar a su equipo feroz dijo vamos todos a Llévame al jonrón, cómprame palomitas y cacahuates. ¿Qué me importa si nunca regrese? Y vamos nuestros muchachos, ganar es lo que les pido. Y con un, dos, tres estás en el 